Wow. Faithful God. Welcome, everyone. You can remain standing. We're going to read the scripture here in just a moment. Our text uh, this morning, once again, is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're talking about the sojourner, referencing Jesus as he makes his pilgrimage for the last time into Jerusalem. And we've learned that uh, Jesus valued, highly valued his closest relationships. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago and how important his friendships were as he lived his life and fulfilled his mission. And then last week we talked about Jesus at the crossroads, the points in our lives when we have major decisions to make. And we learned that Jesus was the one guy with the strength of character necessary to make the most important decision in all of human history, which was to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world, your sins and mine. Aren't you glad Jesus got that decision right? And today I want to talk about Jesus and his enemies. Now some of us have enemies. Maybe you have people who persecute you or who uh, treat you unfairly because of your faith. And let me ask you this question. Are there enemies of God in the world? Yes, there are enemies of God. And so today we will uh, consider those enemies of Jesus, what we might learn about their motives so that we can avoid those tendencies. We want to be the friend of God, right? Not the enemy of God. And then to see how Jesus responded to his enemies. And we will have then modeled for us how we can best respond to people who, who are hurtful toward us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. If not, we'll project these words on the screen. This now is a, is a reference where we see some of the enemies of Jesus confronting him. Beginning in Mark 12, verse 13, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians, again, enemies of Jesus, to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now listen, what they're saying is actually true, but can you, can you feel the sarcasm? These are enemies. They're, they're, they're being critical of Jesus here, not complimentary. And they ask, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? They replied, it's Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. And now another group of enemies, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to him with a question. And again, please note the tone of sarcasm. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, that a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married, died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, they asked, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, you're not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. <laughs> so Jesus responds to his enemies. May God inspire us today through his important word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me just remind you that Jesus is the most dominant man on the landscape of his day. 
He is the most intriguing. He's the most controversial. He's the most provocative. He's the most interesting. He's the most well-known, the most powerful, the most hope-producing person alive of his day. In fact, we can say he's the most hopeful person who's ever lived. He is very, very well-known and popular. In fact, he causes riots wherever he goes. Everywhere he goes now, throngs and multitudes of people just crush in trying to hear him or touch him. And so he is known in some quarters as a miracle worker. He is very famous. He is very well known. He is very popular. And then in other quarters, he's considered a charlatan. His behavior, his activity is going to bring the foot of Rome down on the back of our neck. And so people resented him for stirring up so much controversy and so much trouble. So he was loved. He was adored. He was worshipped. And at the same time, he was hated and despised and rejected and plotted against by his enemies. Now let's uh, talk about and consider his enemies. This is on your outline. It's the first uh, Roman numeral there. Number one, the enemies of Christ. You need the word enemies. The first uh, group that I want to uh, suggest are the Pharisees. Now it's not hard to understand why the Pharisees were at odds with Jesus because Jesus was constantly poking at them. He was constantly challenging every motive of their heart and every activity of their lives. Uh, that might tend to make you surly as well. But they were really uh, vicious in their attacks of him. Now, who were the Pharisees? These, uh, these were the scribes. These were the legalists, the, the religious legalists, if you will. They, they not only knew the law, but they expected close adherence to the law. There are over 600 laws from, from Moses in the Old Covenant and they piled laws on top of laws. So these hundreds and hundreds of laws, which they had uh, the mastery over. And the reason that they mastered the law and had such high expectations with the people is because they wanted to maintain their religious and political control over folks. Do you hear the word control? And so legalism through these Pharisees manifested in this religious control over people. They wanted to preserve their power. They wanted to preserve their status. Now, let me ask you, are there legalists in the world today? Of course there are. And uh, even in Christian circles, you can see it. Uh, for example, there are churches, congregations that have a legalistic tendency. And these are pastors who typically are red-faced all the time and constantly, quote, throwing the book at people, reminding people how bad they are and how far they've fallen and what's going to happen to them if they don't straighten up. And, and, and so it leaves, it leaves an impression. There are denominational officials that exist in certain mainline denominations, and they know all the rules and the, and, the, and the regulations within that denomination, and they want to hold everybody accountable to the rules and the statutes. And the reason they do that, what motivates them, is the need for control and power. It's very interesting. Um, let me just remind you that the pastor's job, my job isn't to represent you before, the, before God. That's not my job. My job is to encourage you to grow, develop, and grow in your personal relationship with God. My job is to nurture and to encourage and to inspire best I can for you to develop your own personal relationship with God, not to represent you before God. Otherwise, I'd be saying to you, look, it's not necessary for you to pray or not necessary for you to, to, uh, to read the Bible or develop spiritual disciplines. I'll just do that for you as your representative. That's, that's not... That's not a biblical model. Besides, I don't want to represent you before God. 
I know some of you, and I do not want to be your representative before God. I have enough trouble representing myself before God, let alone you. An example of this is uh, the lame man at the gate, beautiful, when he was miraculously healed after all these years of inability to walk, the Pharisees acknowledged the miracle. It's interesting, their response, basically, when you summarize it, they said, we acknowledge the miracle, now how can we keep this from happening again? See, the worst possible thing in the life of a, of a legalist is for God to actually get loose in someone's life. Because if God is loose in your life, now you're going to have all kinds of a liberty to do all kinds of amazing things for Jesus' sake, and I don't have any control over you anymore. And so, and so legalists tend toward this control and power. Now, the next group of enemies of Jesus were the Sadducees. We see them in our text in Mark 12 today, and they are defined as those who didn't believe in the resurrection. They're the ones who begin this story about the seven brothers and the wife, and they do not believe in the resurrection. It's, the old joke goes, that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe believe in the supernatural. They didn't, they didn't believe in, the, in spiritual powers. They didn't believe in demons or angels or, or the life hereafter. They were, they, were, they were, in modern vernacular, they were the liberals or the progressives of their day. Um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't believe in the coming of Messiah only to accept uh, Messiah in the political sense as Zionists. They anticipated a, a new Davidic throne, a, a new uh, national Zionism for Israel. So they were jaded, they were without hope, they were cold-blooded, cold-eyed liberals who considered themselves part of the religious establishment, yet denied any of the spiritual realities of that. They, they had the form of religion, but they didn't have any of the power of the religion uh, available to them. Um, and this whole conversation about these seven brothers in Mark 12 is tongue-in-cheek. They are being sarcastic and critical of Jesus. So these are the Sadducees, the liberals, progressives. The next uh, group of enemies are Herodians, and we see them mentioned in our text here in Mark 12. Now, the Herodians, these were Jewish people, but they were in alignment with Herod, who was the Roman king at the time, so thus the name Herodians. They, they are the ones uh, who want peaceful coexistence with Israel and their Roman occupiers. So they are sinful, Herodians. They are sensual. They are materialistic, and they are pragmatic. Now follow this. They are the go-along to get-along crowd. They'll do whatever is necessary in order to maintain their position and their power and their status in high places. They don't care who's in the White House. But they live in Washington and they'll do whatever they need to do. They'll play whatever game they have to play in order to fulfill their own sensual needs. They are politically correct, they are selfish, and they are without real conviction. Herodians. Do we have such people in the world today? I just, I just tipped my hand, right? Washington, D.C. is full of them. And then we have the Romans, the enemies of God. They, they're oddly enough the most distant of his enemies at this point in the story, and for the moment the least lethal toward them. It's interesting in uh, Mark chapter 15, we find this occasion when the Sanhedrin, which is a whole collection of the leaders of the, of the Pharisees and high priests and Sadducees, 
they have bound Jesus. Now, this is, the, this is the trial, beginning of the trial. They bind Jesus, and they take them to the house of Pontius Pilate, who's the governor. And so here's Pontius Pilate, and the first thing that Pontius Pilate says to Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, we don't know if he's being sarcastic or not, or he's just curious, but this is the first introduction of Rome really into the life of Jesus. They're not particularly threatening to him at this point. So Pontius Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Now, we don't know if that's tongue-in-cheek or not, but Jesus responds to Pontius Pilate, and he says, it is as you say. It is as you say. Are you the king of the Jews? You said it. Now, remember, C.S. Lewis helped us formulate this concept of Jesus. He said he's either a liar, or he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. So when Jesus responds to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, and he says, I am, he's either lying or he's crazy or he is the king of the Jews and he is Lord. And so Pilate has to come to terms with that. Now it's interesting to note uh, that, that for many decades, many scholars, especially from a liberal progressive perspective, liberal scholars, which is in my mind an oxymoron, but most of these men and women doubted the existence of Pontius Pilate. They didn't believe he even existed because the only reference to Pontius Pilate in all of, of literature is in the New Testament. And of course, if you're a professor of theology training young men and women to become ministers of local churches, the last thing you want to rely on is the New Testament. Now, I'm being sarcastic. And so many, many of these scholars literally taught their students for decades that Pontius Pilate, that's a myth, you know, he's just a made-up name in this uh, mythological story of Jesus in the Gospels. Until about 20 years ago, when a first-century Roman amphitheater in Caesarea, ancient Caesarea, it was determined, because it was a tourist site, it was determined that it was becoming unsafe, and so they were going to they were going to replace all the seats in this amphitheater, uh, seats which originally were made of stone and crisscross stone. And because it was becoming too loose and dangerous, they were going to uh, replace these stones with replicas. And when they turned the first stone from the first row over, they found underneath this stone an inscription which read, and I quote, dedicated this day by me to the glory of Caesar Augustus, signed Pontius Pilate. At which point, 50% of the seminary professors and at least one major denomination had to start apologizing. Well, I guess there was a pilot. Shazam! Yeah, there was a pilot. So the Romans represent the re region's political and the military power. They're, they're concerned about political power and money through taxation. They really don't have any ideals. They are willing to resort to brutality to keep power and at the same time give the appearance that they're keeping the civil law. So these guys are all about power, and, and they, they tell people, listen, all you poor little people out there, if you do what we say, we'll take care of you, keep the civil law intact, you pay your taxes, pay your taxes, and everything will go well with you. Get out of line, and we will brutalize you. So stay in line and pay your taxes. Now let me ask you this. Do you know anyone attempting to hold political power or gain political power through intrusive and abusive taxation? People with suspicious ideals and morals? Anyone like that? Yeah. 
So the spirit of these enemies of God are alive and well in our world today. And then finally, there's the mob. Now, don't dismiss the mob. Seek to understand them. These are the common men and women bound together by the events, the circumstances, rather by any common goal or purpose. They're they're moved by their emotion, and therefore they are fickle, unpredictable, undisciplined, uh, lacking maturity, lacking balance, lacking perspective. Just an unruly mob. The same people who greeted Jesus in the triumphal entry of Jerusalem, we call this, we celebrate this on Palm Sunday, waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, save us, save us now, save us today. They're shouting this to Jesus. Fast forward seven days. These are the same people, just as sure as the world. One guy in that crowd on on the first day shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, seven days later is shouting in the portico of, of Pontius Pilate's house, crucify him. Now, how fickle is that? So we see all of these systems in the world coming together to conspire against God and his son, Jesus Christ. There's religion, there's false theology, there's collaboration and carnality, there's political power, and then there's the thoughtless, undiscerning, emotion-driven humanity. These are the enemies of God. Now, let's, with that as a foundation, let's consider what motivates these enemies. This is the Roman numeral two on your outline. And this is where now you and I can make some application because sometimes what motivates our lives puts us at odds with God. And if we can identify some of these things, we can work to rid ourselves of them. So number two, the motives of Christ's enemies. For example, if you had asked the Pharisees, what's the greatest hope of Israel? They'd have said the coming of Messiah Emmanuel. Sadducees, they would have said the coming of the king, the Herodians, that God will restore us to power. If you ask the mob, what's the best thing God could do for you? They'd say, save us, salvation. Deliver us from this Roman oppression. Here's the question. How did all of these enemies of God miss it? Jesus is standing right in front of them. How did they miss, how did they miss him? And the answer to the question is, They missed him because of what motivated their resistance to God in the first place. For example, and you want to write this down, for the Pharisees, their motive in resistance to God was envy. Write down the word envy. The issue for people, any person who's inclined toward legalism will be envy. And the Pharisees were the ultimate legalists. Envy is actually the twin sister of murder. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Envy and jealousy. A person who makes a statement that is envious or jealous in nature is always a person who represents lack in their life. It's a a frank admission that I am at deficit. I see something about you or that you possess that I am envious or jealous of, so I am lacking something. I'm in deficit as a person, and that's why I express envy toward that person or that group. And so this is what's happening with the Pharisees. They're envious. Have you heard the phrase, the dog in the manger? Let let me explain, the dog in the manger. The the dog is, uh, is sitting in a manger full of hay, and the cow comes over to eat the hay, and the dog barks at the cow and drives the cow away, and so the cow backs up. Finally, the cow says, look, if... If you won't let me eat the hay, then you eat the hay. And the dog says, wait a minute, no, no. 
I don't eat hay. I'm a dog. So it's the dog in the manger. The legalist is the dog in the manger. When the, when the, when the presence of God, an authentic move of God, and a, a, a real and truthful experience of God is happening in someone else's life, the legalist will become envious of that, become jealous of that, because it's not part of their rules. It's not part of their expectations. And so they will, they will be the dog in the manger. Look, you're not going to eat the hay, and I don't eat hay, so nobody gets it. And that's what motivated the Pharisees. They couldn't see Jesus because of their envy. Let me put this statement on the screen. Maybe it will help. Don't be so narrow that you cannot imagine God working in another person's life in a way that's different than the way he works in your life. God's going to be working in people's lives. And if, if you're so narrow and legalistic that you exclude some op- options and opportunities for God to work in someone else's life and then God starts working in another person's life, don't you be the one who says, that's not right. That can't be of God. Just be careful about that. Then we move to the Sadducees. Now remember, that in the modern vernacular, these are liberals or progressives. And their motive as Christ's enemies was unbelief. Write down the word unbelief. They couldn't receive the reality of Christ because they had closed out the supernatural options by their poor theology. Remember, these are the ones who don't believe in spiritual things. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in supernatural moments. They they, they just don't go there. The, The problem with unbelief, see, is that I systematize my unbelief, and by doing so, I build a wall around my life, around my mind and my heart, through which God cannot penetrate. The Bible says without faith, you can't please God. The thing that God runs to, flows toward, gravitates to, is when a person opens their heart and says, God, I want, I want to trust you. I want to believe in you. I want to give you a chance in my life. God always answers that prayer. Without faith, it's impossible. So unbelief, unbelief is a horrible um, barrier to God's authentic work in our lives. Now watch how people build these walls and barriers of unbelief. For example, you may be a person like me who has a story like this. I grew up in church. I grew up in church. And up until the age of 16, when Jesus, you know, caught up with me, this was my attitude toward church. I never missed. I was there every time the doors opened. And I never received. Think about, think about the, the challenge of that. This is the way my mind was working back in the day. I never really got anything from it. So by the age of 16, while I had been raised in the church, I came to this conclusion. I think if there was something to this, I would have experienced it by now. Must not be anything to it. And so there was unbelief that began to grow in my life, res- resisting the things of God. That can happen to you. Or you may have a story where you grew up in a legalistic church where folks were so narrow and so insistent and so critical that it left an impression. I was hammered mercilessly week after week for years. Religion, they conclude, is nothing but a cold and lifeless and joyless set of rules and regulations that can't possibly be adhered to. So I'm out. Count me out. By the way, there there are 
many, many, many people who've come through Union Chapel over the years that I describe as recovering legalists. People who grew up in a very legalistic religious culture and environment and they were wounded by it because it does, it hurts you. Uh, folks who lead legalistic religious organizations think that they're helping people to become holy. They're not helping them to become holy. They're just keeping control over people and making them mean and resentful. So people need to be healed from that. So, so when you've heard for years and years and years that you're no good and you're never going to amount to anything and, and you don't have what it takes and if you don't behave properly, you're just going to go to hell. If that's all you hear, listen, that leaves a, that leaves a mark. And so what happens over time, I've, I've observed this at Union Chapel, recovering legalists come stumbling into our church and they, they're people that I describe as just on the defensive, ready to flinch, expecting someone to smack them. But what happens at Union Chapel, because we have an ethos here, we have a, we have a culture here of love and acceptance and forgiveness, we actually love people, we do that pretty authentically, we do, we do that the best we can, and what happens after a period of time is people start letting their guard down. And when they let their guard down, this system of unbelief comes down, this protection comes down, and God's grace, healing grace, is able to touch people in their emotions. And that process begins. It's a beautiful thing. I've watched it many, many times. We could, we could line up people all day long just telling stories about God's healing work just from being in a safe place, a safe environment. But many people who have grown up in legalistic cultures, they run from God as fast as they can go. And unbelief has been created because of this legalism. Now here's another story, a person who says, I've never been to church. But there are a lot of people in our culture today, in our world, who says, however, I've known many people who have been regular churchgoers and they're the biggest hypocrites in the world. So there can't be anything to it. And so they build their unbelief based on observing people who pretend to be religious, and do so inauthentically. And then, and then there's another group of people that is uh, growing in our culture, and these are people who used to be a believer. Until I started college or got some life experience, then I began to think for myself. I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what you believe, just so you're sincere and you believe something. My motto is live and let live. Tolerance is the greatest virtue thoughtfulness and open-mindedness to all religions is desirable. So when it comes to the supernatural or the miraculous or some personal experience with God or being touched by God by the Holy Spirit, I'm much too sophisticated, much too complex to swallow such a notion. And so there are people in our world who used to believe, oh yeah, I used to believe that stuff, but not anymore. And then we have people in our culture now who like to talk, describe themselves as spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person, which in today's vernacular means I'm a very open-minded person, I'm a very tolerant person, I'm open to all kinds of views. I'm not religious. It's almost always the qualifier that you hear after someone says, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm not religious, which means I don't adhere to any particular creed or set of religious ideas, but I'm very open-minded to everybody, live and let live, a very spiritual person, blah, blah, blah. If you ask this person, did you know that the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? Do you believe that? They would say, oh, no. That's too narrow, too, ex too exclusive. Too ex uh, no, I don't believe that. What, what about there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved? Do you believe that? That's in the Bible. No, I don't believe that. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Well, no. No, I don't believe that. Too open-minded, too, too sophisticated for that. And it becomes, literally becomes a system of unbelief. Let me just remind you that, that, that theology, theology about God is what you believe to be true about God. Unbelief is what you believe not to be true about God. So do you believe that Jesus is God's son and the savior of the world and the hope for eternity? If so, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I, I'm an unbeliever when it comes to that. And let me just say, friends, that there are two things that can, that can build a wall of unbelief and separate you from God not only today but for eternity. Two things that can get you there faster than anything else. One is spiritual pride. A very spiritual person. I'm open-minded to everything, all the ideas. And intellectual pride. I'm way too smart, way too complex, way too sophisticated. You know, they tried to teach me that when I was a kid, but I'm smarter than that now. So I don't buy in to this, uh, this uh, believe the Bible thing and trust, trust Christ alone for my salvation. And unbelief, unbelief, spiritual pride, intellectual pride will build the walls of unbelief in your life. And listen, without faith, you cannot please God. Unbelief will send you to hell faster than anything else in the world. See, in order to come to Jesus, you must believe that he is and that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You must come as a child, not, not thoughtless, not mindless, but in humility and submission. That's how you come to God. That's how you say yes and embrace Christ by faith. So let me put this statement on the screen just to summarize. When I make a God of my own intellect and an idol of my own system of unbelief, I sin unto God. And it will cost me. For the Sadducees then, it was unbelief. Now let's go a little more quickly. For the Herodians, their motive was their carnal nature, their natural appetites, their own sensuality, carnal nature, their sensual, carnal, compromising only to satisfy their own desires. Now let me ask you, are there any people in our culture who have made a God of their own flesh? Anybody? Then for the Romans, it was political and military power. That's all they were interested in, political and military power. It's, it's the young Nazi with a skinhead and a swastika tattooed on his arm. He may think that he's an, he's an idealist. He's nothing but a corrupt person confused about the world and seeking to control and dominate people. It's, 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 men, it's men flying the crescent moon flag of Islam over an ISIS tank who may try to convince you that they're driven by ideologies of their desire to, to, to honor the God they serve. And nothing could be further from the truth. They are about power and control and domination. That's what drives it. And that's what drove the Romans. And then finally we have the mob. And again, don't dismiss the mob because what motivated them was their emotions. Now follow this. Think with me. Stay with me. They were driven by their emotions. These are the ones who are controlled and dominated by what they're feeling. And this is the least dependable group. Emotions have no discernment. Emotions have no predictability. Let me ask you this question to illustrate. Have you seen people on the streets of the United States in the last months or so in mobs completely dominated by their emotions? 
Have you seen that? This is what happens when folks have no controlling ethic and they have no moral foundation points. So when you don't have a good argument against whatever is happening, you, you are reduced to screeching. You just go out in the street, the street and start yelling, driven by your emotion. Crucify him. What do you mean by that? I don't, I don't know. Everybody else was saying it. Wow. So, so you see these, these tendencies that people had who were motivated as the enemies of Christ. And if you see yourself in it, I see myself in, these, in, these, in this context. Sometimes I get emotional and irrational. Sometimes I'm filled with unbelief. Sometimes I'm, I'm envious. I feel the corruption of these motives, don't you? And, and these, these are the things that produce re- resistance to God's best plan. And you don't want that in your life. So let's, let's consider now just briefly as we conclude, what, what did Jesus do? How did he respond? And so Roman numeral three, the last point, Jesus responds to his enemies. Now I know by this time in the message, you'd be too tired to fill in any more blanks, so I didn't give you any more blanks. I just put the statements in there. Here's number one. His schedule was not determined by men. In other words, he was doing what the Father told him. His enemies were reacting to him. Remember in the further conversation with Pontius Pilate the night of the trial, Pilate first asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He said, I am. And then after a period of time, Pilate got frustrated because Jesus wouldn't defend himself. And Pilate finally said to him, don't you realize I have the power to put you to death? And that's when Jesus raised up and looked at him and said, no, you don't. No, you don't. The only authority you have over me is the authority I give you. The only reason we're in this room pretending like you're in charge is because I'm giving you that authority. Jesus didn't have to submit to that trial and the nonsense of Pontius Pilate or anyone else. Jesus didn't have to hang on the cross you do realize that Jesus could have extricated himself from the cross any moment he chose. You do understand that all of the angels of heaven were standing on the, on the horizons of the planet with their swords drawn. All Jesus had to do was say, I can't take this anymore. And the angels would have immediately removed Jesus from the cross and wiped out the world and everyone in it. But instead, Jesus drank to the last drop the cup of suffering. Not next to the last, but all the way to the last. In order that you and I might have hope that we otherwise would not have. So when you hear the critics and the enemies of Jesus pushing back, Saying, well, he wasn't all that. He's just another good teacher. He's just another guy we're not even sure he lived or not. All kinds of obfuscation, all kinds of, all kinds of confusion, all kinds of resistance, all kinds of persecution towards the truth and the people of the truth. You remember, don't, don't, let, don't let all the debris in today's modern world, postmodern culture, keep you from seeing the ultimate reality that Jesus made a way for you when there was no way. And he is our hope. And we're not angry because there aren't 50 ways to God. We're just eternally thankful for God made a way. He made a way for us. His name is Jesus.
He refused to break down. He refused to back down or retreat. He walked straight into the face of the conflict and the threat. He's modeling what it looks like. Number three, when he threatened, when threatened, he turned to God. He was calm. He was meditative. He was prayerful. He was disciplined. Yeah. Calm and assertive in the face of enemies. And then fourthly, he concentrated more and more on his closest relationships. Why do you think the devil hates the family so much? The institution of God. You know, marriage is an institution of God. Why do you think the devil works so hard to destroy families? It's because, one of the reasons is because God knows we need a safe place to go when we're under attack. There's got to be some safe haven. That's why God designed the family. Now, having said that, I know that some of your families aren't safe. It isn't a safe place. So let me just tell you God's next best place. It's called the church, the family of God. This, this is sanctuary for you. This is a place where you can come and feel safe. Be protected from the enemies of your soul. Find a place to be nurtured. Let me put this last statement on the screen. If the devil can destroy your support system, then in the moment of crisis, you won't have the protection you need to survive. And we all need it. So not only do we see the enemies of Jesus, but we understand their motives. And we see how Jesus responded. And here's the challenge for us today. Are there issues in our, our lives that keep us contrary to God's best? And do we need to lay those aside and pray for God's grace, the strength we need to overcome those wounds and those temptations? And then in the face of opposition and persecution and difficulty in this life, Jesus models for us what it looks like to lean into that conflict and to deal with it authentically, courageously, graciously. So God, give us ears to hear as the sojourner models for us this important walk of trust in Christ. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we've considered the enemies today, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Rome, mob. We've considered the modern-day equivalents. Lord, we confess this morning that our sins are represented by some of these enemies. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we're envious. We have unbelief. Carnality grips us. We're overcome by the desires of our own flesh. We admit, Lord, that we're so susceptible to seeking power, political power, military power. Lord, we, ad we admit sometimes we just get caught up in the emotion of it and we become unthinking and undisciplined and yet in spite of all those things Lord you model for us what authenticity looks like in the face of enemies so fill us Lord with the same the same grace the same strength the same character that allowed you to so calmly and prayerfully, so disciplined, face into your enemies and overcome. Help us because we need, we need help. Meet each one of us at the point of our need. And Lord, I pray for maybe one person in the room today who's been particularly challenged by this section of unbelief. 
Maybe, maybe, friend, you're in the room today and you identified with one of these circumstances and you realize how you've built a wall of unbelief around your own life and it keeps God from touching you in a meaningful way. Could I encourage you today to know that there's one prayer that God always answers? It's the cry for help, the admission of sin, the sin of unbelief. Lord, I confess, it's hard for me to believe. It's hard for me. Please help me in my unbelief. That's a prayer God will answer in your life, friend. If you pray that prayer in your heart this morning, God will come to you and meet you right where you are. You don't have to be something you're not today. Just allow Jesus to meet you where you are. Take your life from this point forward. You'll never regret it. So Lord, in all these ways, meet each one of us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?